be with you tonight um, as we are continuing to walk through the Gospel of Mark. Um, if you would like, there's some journals in the back. If you're kind of note taker or just want to take uh, take some take some uh, processing home with you or that kind of stuff, um, those are free. Those are for you. Um, and, and as we're walking through, we're covering kind of a chapter, half chapter, chunk at a time, and just kind of drawing out some of the themes that we see in Jesus' life um, that, frankly, like we might miss if we dissect things too minutely. And so, so I want us to stay on this kind of theme level uh, this evening. We're in Jesus' last week. Um, we, we, today, are approaching Easter, just about a month away, a little less than a month away. Um, and in Jesus' life, he's within his final week, and so he is... Uh, teachings some final teachings. Mark is capturing some themes um, before he shows us the death and resurrection of Jesus. So as we start tonight, I'm going to ask you, uh, what are the two like stereotypical things you're never supposed to talk about in social settings? Politics, Politics and? Religion. Religion. What are the first things that Jesus talks about? Herodians and Pharisees come and they say, who should we give taxes to? So that's fun. Uh, Jesus starts right off with that. Uh, you know what aspect of, of people's lives it is common for, for pastors, for church leaders, uh, to say is the hardest to disciple our people in? It's finances. It's money. Like, we can talk about marriage, we can talk about parenting, we can talk about, you know, dis, it's discipleship and things like this. And, and, and I'm with us on this. Like, we kind of keep our, our wallets, our credit cards and stuff. Like, there's a, there's a little bit of a, of a Heisman approach to that. Like, you don't get to touch that. Is that fair? Like, other people speak into that. It's kind of weird. Guess what Jesus talks about at the end of this verse? The offerings, the money. Jesus is just doing all the things that are not socially, both back then and today, acceptable. Guess what? He did that a lot. And he invites us to do that as well. And, and I wanted to bring out that start and end of this long passage that Jen read to, to, to draw out two insights. Uh, first, Jesus is not afraid of the hard and sensitive parts of your life. I just want to let that sink in for a minute. Jesus is not afraid of the hard and sensitive parts of your life. Jesus loves you. Jesus cares about the things you like most about yourself and your life. And he cares about the things that you like least about yourself and your life. He cares about your highest highs and your lowest lows. He cares about the aspects of you that you are most proud of. And he cares about the aspects of you that you're most ashamed of. Jesus cares and is not afraid to enter into the most, even the parts of your life that you'd rather keep hidden from him. He, he knows, loves, cares for you, even in and, and because of that, a second thing I just want to frame up our conversation tonight with is to say that there's not a part of your life, there are zero parts of your life that you need to withhold from Jesus. In fact, if we believe in a God who does know everything, there's zero parts of your life you can withhold from Jesus. And at times we live as if like we put the spiritual part here and the, the mental part there. We'll put this aspect of our day over here and kind of divide our lives and divide our souls into these things and go, well, Jesus cares about this part, but this part's mine. Or I don't want him to know this part. I don't want anyone to know this part. At times we try to, to, to give God just enough to appease him. This is a question throughout the Old Testament, kind of what's the percentage I have to give to the temple? question people ask today, what's the right percentage to give to the church kind of stuff? And then we go, well, the rest is mine. That's, that's, not, that's not how Jesus is going to frame up our conversation. 
In, in this, this one verse in Mark 12, it's really two verses in Mark 12, are two of my favorite verses in the Bible, and it's a theme we're going to keep coming back to today again and again and again. It's part of what Jen just read. They're going to be on the screen. These are the two verses that I think the rest of this can be seen through. The scribe says, what's the greatest commandment in the, in the, in the Old Testament, in our Hebrew scriptures at the time? And Jesus says, it's this. You shall love the Lord your God with, can we say this together? All your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. So here's what we're going to see tonight. It'll be on the screen as well. Um, Jesus invites us to give him our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, our whole strength. Because, one, he alone deserves every part of your life. And two, I'm going to let you in on something here. He alone is the right something, and I've struggled this week to even find the exact word for it. But he's the only, it's somewhere in the realm. If you can figure this out with me by the end of the night, but I, but, but I, I don't know that there's a word to, to fully explain it, and that's like mysteriously beautiful and rich to me, so I just left it at this. So Jesus is the one who is the right something in the realm of selfless, loving king sacrificial, caring recipient of every part of your life. He's the one who, who will take your life and not use it against you, not use it to build himself up. He's, he's the one who rather will take every aspect of your life and, and selflessly care and, and help it flourish and thrive. And I don't know if there's a word for that. But, but whatever that concept is, that's why Jesus is worth giving our entire lives. He deserves it, and he's the only one who will be that and take that posture to it. So, how's that for a big start for us? Um, all right, next slide. As, as, as Mark does, and especially toward the end of the book, what we're going to see is multiple scenes. And they're all related around that one thing, loving God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving neighbor. And each scene is an invitation for a person and people, both then and now to give a piece of our life to God, who alone deserves it, and who alone is whatever that is, selfless, loving, king, sacrificial, caring, flourishing recipient, or to hang on to it, and to use that aspect of our lives for ourselves, for our benefit, or, or to give it to some lesser God. The first conversation he has is around the theme of taxes. So, so Pharisees and, and Herodians, there's these two groups of folks who come together um, and ask Jesus, should we pay our taxes? But here's what we need to see in every one of these scenes, church. There's a question underneath the question. The question they're asking is not actually about do we give a couple coins or do we give our percentage to the government or whatever else. It's a question about allegiance. There are these two groups who come together. The Pharisees are the ruling class of Israel. The Herodians are, are the government-appointed uh, kind of Roman, Roman emissaries of the monarchy kind of stuff. And so it's a question of do you associate more with the religious hierarchy of the day or do you associate more with the governmental hierarchy of the day? And, and what they're trying to do is, is to say where are you finding your identity? Where should we find our identity. Is, our, is our identity in our, our, our religious tradition? Is our identity in government and politics around us? Does it sound familiar, by the way, as to some of the things that are vying for our identity today? 
Um, are you finding your identity in this aspect of government, this governmental leader? Are, are you finding your identity in what this religious tradition says you should be doing? And in identity is a question of, of our souls. It's a question of, of the, the kind of ethereal, who are you? What is your primary foundation? If you stripped away everything in your life, what is, what is, what is your primary allegiance? What's your foundation? And, and, and what they would have shown him is this, this coin, you can Google this later, that kind of stuff, but, but this, this little coin that on one side had an image of the emperor, and on it it said, this is the emperor, the son of the divine Augustus. So Caesar Augustus, long line of verse, the son of the divine Augustus. On the other side, it said, with another image, that the emperor is the high priest. Now, this still happens. The, the king has been the queen of England. Now the king of England is the head of the church of England. So there's this intertwining of religion and government that's existed throughout the Roman Empire all the way back into this day. Similarly, the, the head of the Roman Empire was the head of the, the pagan church. And we use the word pagan today, and it's kind of a negative connotation. That was just the Roman religion at the time. So the Roman head of the Roman religion was the emperor. He was the high priest. Um, now, we've walked through Mark for a little while. Some of you have been around kind of Jewish tradition for long enough to know that if on one side of a coin it says... Son of the divine God is what they're saying. And on the other side, it says, this is the high priest. The emperor is the high priest. What's, what's that going to do to you if you're, if you're Jewish, if you're from the nation of Israel? What do you think? It's going to make you mad. It flies in the face of everything you hold to. Because at the time, they're waiting for a Messiah, one who is the son of the Most High God. And there was a literal class of priests, one of whom, only one, could enter the temple of that Most High God and make atonement for sins. And, and so this is, the coin itself is utterly blasphemous to the, to the Jewish people at the time. And so the Pharisees, Herodians, are trying to play a trick on Jesus. Because if Jesus says, oh, no, you should give everything to Rome, then they could say, well, you're not a good Jew. How could you possibly be the Messiah? And they would go and take that to the crowds, and they would turn the crowds against Jesus, saying he's pro-Rome, he's pro-government. That's where his identity is found. But if he says, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes, then what do the folks who are trying to trick him and kill him get to do? They get to go to the Roman rulers at the time and say, he just said we shouldn't pay our taxes. That's treason. You know what the penalty for treason is? It's death. So in their minds, these two groups are coming together like we got them. Got them right where we want them. One side of the coin, literally, um, Jews are going to deny him. One other side of the coin, we're going to blame him for treason. Either way, he's off our hands. But Jesus sees through their actual answer and sees to the soul of what they're really asking. And so on one hand, and you see this laced through the scriptures, we've talked about this before, there's moments where governmental things, especially when they're tied to religious things, get really hard and really tricky and really messy. 
and really unchristlike. But on one hand, Jesus picks up this theme that we do see in the scriptures that says, honor the government and honor the authority of the places that we live, even if our primary allegiance isn't to that government, or even if our primary allegiance isn't to that human authority. And the theme through scripture is honor that until the human authority does something that is directly opposed to God. Because the reality is every follower of Jesus exists in some society. Every, every, everyone wants to live well within this society, whatever society we're placed in, and yet Jesus says don't be shaped by it. Live here well, but don't be shaped by it. That's not your primary identity. And so by paying a tax, Peter's, or Jesus is picking up a theme like we see in 1 Peter. He says, honor, your honor the government. Honor the government around you. On the other hand, he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. Kids in the room, what belongs to God? Everything. Everything. You get it. You know who didn't get it? The grown-ups in this passage. They didn't get it. Everything belongs to God. The core of Jesus' answer is not to separate church and state, give to Caesar this percentage, give to God this percentage, kind of over here. It's a question about identity. If, if God shapes our primary identity, if God owns everything already, then we get to give to God all the under the surface all the things that make us us. We get to give God every part of our life. So yeah, honor the folks around us with what we need to do. But who owns everything and who deserves everything and who, when given every part of your life, will, will treat it as a selfless, loving king and sacrificial, caring recipient? More than government, more than religion, more than family, more than title, more than anything, your soul, your whole being belongs to God. That's what Jesus is saying and inviting us to believe in this first little vignette. And then the next scene comes along, which is a different group of leaders. Notice what Mark is doing here. He's saying this group of leaders asks one question, next group of leaders asks another question. This is the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were the most, like, theologically conservative, like, very by-the-book, boxy, dissect-everything kind of group of leaders at the time. And so they asked this question about marriage, but guess what? It's not really a question about marriage. It's a question about knowledge. It's a question about figuring God out. It's a question of theology, but theology to, like, the minute and nth degree. So they only believe the first five books of the Old Testament were authoritative. Um, and so on one hand, they didn't see the resurrection in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, so they didn't believe in the resurrection. On the other hand, the law that they brought to Jesus was from the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to go really nerdy here for just a second. It's called Leverite Marriage, which basically said if a brother dies, then the next, if a man dies, the next brother down would marry the wife of the older brother. The, the, the idea was to keep the, the wife in the family, to provide some protection. Primarily, it was to procreate, because at the time, blessings and lineages were tied to having kids. 
That seems like a very outdated scenario for us in our world today, maybe. But based on this, they bring Jesus this, this silly-seeming, very hypothetical challenge. This one dies, his brother carries out his duty, but guess what? That brother dies, the third brother carries out his duty. All the way down, seven brothers die. And so their question is, well, which brother is the wife's husband in eternity? Now, to be fair, eternity is just flat confusing. Can we agree with that? So that we've asked some version of some question. We've seen one thing in the Bible, and we're like, is that what it's going to be like for all of eternity? There's a lot of confusion around eternity, rightly so. In fact, we're going to spend a few Sundays after Easter to start with our middle school kids, who uh, all of their questions in their question box, most of them are about what happens in eternity. Uh, so we're going to honor that and realize they're probably asking questions that we do for a few Sundays after Easter we're going to try, to try to shape a view of eternity, to the extent that we know at least, and, and, and see how that hope, our true eternal hope, can speak into the hopelessness that a lot of us feel when we're surrounded by the world today. But, but here's what I want to get to, is that in these verses, in this scene, the Sadducees don't really care about this widow. They don't really care about... The, the, the process and, and, and caring for this imaginary, hypothetical scenario. The Sadducees, every time you see them in the scriptures, which is not often, they're obsessed with doctrine, obsessed with right, obsessed with, with figuring God out, even if it means that destroys other people's lives. It's the, you know anyone like this, who, who holds so tightly to something that everything else can go. There's no humanity. In it. There's no soul, there's no heart. It's just being right. Uh, like many followers of Jesus today, if I may be so bold, their perception of faith was tied to how much they could know about God, how much they could figure out God. And, and so if you if you're, have your scriptures open, imagine the blow it is for Jesus to say, you don't know your scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. Because in the weeds, he says there's not going to be marriage in eternity. I'm just going to leave that there for now <laughs> and zoom out. What he's saying is you can't not wrap your mind around eternity. You can't wrap your mind around something. You're trying to think of, of the spiritual realm and, and the, the world that exists beyond your eyes <coughs> in a way that you can figure it out as if it's just like this life. And I don't know about you, church, but if eternity is only figure-outable, if, if, if what we're going to be doing forever and ever is, is only kind of on the same playing field as this life, then there's something lacking in that. There's tons of debate over the end times, though. People are obsessed with doing what the Sadducees were doing and figuring out this is how it's going to happen, this is when it's going to happen, here's exactly precisely what we're going to do. And Jesus says that misses the point. You can't figure out everything about God in his ways. And maybe that cuts someone through who's obsessed with figuring out everything about God in his ways. He's saying you can't figure out God in his ways. And so you're bringing, you're bringing your, your perception of faith, which is like a puzzle to figure out. And Jesus says you're thinking about this wrong. It's not primarily about knowledge. 
there's something and this third group comes along. Another, another group of leaders asking still another question. The scribes in this case, they're lawyers, okay? They care about the law, but all of our lawyers aren't here today. Um, so I'd ask them this if they were here. They care about the law, but really they care about what people did with the law, right? And, and, and think of like, you think even like the, the, the lawyers who have uh, like billboards and that kind of stuff. The law is only really tied to what people what? What they do or don't do. The actions they carry out or don't carry out. Um, we see the law enacted or disregarded by keeping the law or breaking the law, right? So, so the, the lawyers at the time are very concerned about what people do with the law. They say, which command is the most important? Which is to say, which rule is number one? Guess what? They're not really asking actually about the commandment. They're asking a question about their ability to do, their ability to earn, their ability to act. They're saying, which, which is the right box to check? Which is the right rule to follow? Which actions should we prioritize to whether it's make God happy to, to keep living a good life, to, to look right in someone's eyes. And again, I just want us to pause and go, is that, is that us? Do we approach God and go, all right, which, which box do I have to check? What's the bare minimum to get your approval? What do I have to do to, for you to say I'm, I'm, I'm okay here? The question makes sense. If our whole life... And for them, their whole career is about obedience and checking boxes and doing right and doing right. But again, Jesus' answer, y'all, is deeper than the question seems. What Jesus says is, hey, God cares a little less about your outward actions and a lot more about your inward heart and your true affection and where your allegiance lies. God cares about your heart. So, so what, what command is the most important to God? It isn't go do this. It isn't avoid this. It isn't do these four things or make this sacrifice or make this offering. What's the most important command we read a little bit ago? Love. Love the Lord. And if your whole life and career as the scribes were was based on actions and do and don't then for the most important command to be love breaks down their whole construct of what counts and what doesn't count does that make sense? They're, Jesus quotes to them for the record he quotes Deuteronomy 6 because they're still like the, uh, the the Sadducees are still hanging around and so geniusly he quotes back one of the first books of the Bible and and there's, there's, if you have Jewish friends, one of my best friends is Jewish, um, one of the first things they're taught as, as young children uh, is called the Shema. It's out of Deuteronomy 6. It says, Hear, O Israel. You've heard this. This has made its way into our literature as well from our cousins. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. And so what Jesus is doing is he's taking this well-known at the time piece of Israel's law <coughs> also adding a horizontal dimension to it. Love the Lord your God, but where is it easiest to see our love for God played out? 
It's in our love for people. It's in how we treat others, maybe even the folks who are the hardest to love, because spiritually that's kind of how we approach God as well. And we can be pretty hard to love sometimes. So Jesus is two sides of, of the same coin. The most important commandment is love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. The other side of, of one coin is love your neighbor as yourself. Because I want you to see this theme that's building in this chapter. The only right view of God's love and allegiance. Let me say it again. Only a right view of God's love and our right allegiance is going to empower us to rightly love our neighbors. And so this one scribe says, Jesus, you're right, which I put myself in that, again, I think of Jesus as somewhat sarcastic at times, because I think that it's holier to be sarcastic. Um, Jesus, you're right, in, in my mind, he's like, yeah, I am, I'm, I'm Jesus, you know. <coughs> I thought that was cool. That's okay. He says, you're right. Loving God is more important than offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus affirms this man and says, you're close to the kingdom of God. You're close to the kingdom of God. You get the heart of your kingdom. And in his last interaction with all of these groups of leaders, as Mark pictures this kind of quick fire, scene after scene after scene, the last interaction... Um, has all of these folks standing around and, and, and Jesus cuts to the core of, of all three. He says, what do you love? Who do you love? If it's not God or neighbor, he's looking at these scribes and says, beware of them. They walk around wanting the, the most honorable seat, wearing the fanciest robes. They look the fanciest. They look the best. What are they asking people for? They're asking people for worship. They're asking people for love. They're asking people to honor them and see them as the most important. And so in, in Jesus' words, he's saying, be, beware of the scribes. They walk around looking like they deserve what only God actually deserves. Who, who do you love if it's not God most? Sorry, who do you love most if it's not God? What do you love most if it's not God? Most of the time, we are so tempted to give our love, affection, worship, honor to someone or something else that looks like they deserve it, or if we're honest, we think we deserve it. If I'm honest, who do I love? If it's not loving God, I love myself most. So I want what I want most, and I'm going to honor whatever I want most. I'm going to pursue the things that I want we can carry ourselves like the scribes or other people can carry themselves like the scribes in an important way and invite you to love them or yourself, honor them or yourself give them or yourself allegiance and worship in other things, in other words all these things are vying for your heart and Jesus says beware of the scribes you know what beware, one of the translations of it is it's, it's guard your heart Beware of, your, of, of where your affections are going. Be careful of who you give your heart to. Like that stupid cheesy Christmas song that plays every freaking year. Last Christmas. Right? I gave you my heart. And what, what, what did the evil human do with it? Gave it away. 
So this, but I mean, see, I hate that song. Don't we do that though? Like we'll we'll put a piece of our heart over here and find that that person or thing just destroys us. And so we'll go. Well, well maybe next year I'll give someone real special. Guess what that person does? This been your experience? So many things take our heart and don't treat them. Back to that intangible word that I couldn't figure out. Don't treat our hearts as a selfless, loving king or sacrificial, caring crucifier. Jesus says, beware. Guard your heart. One, one author said that describes you walk around like spiritual peacocks, just on display. But in truth, they were more than that. They were predators. And there's a lot of things that say, oh, just trust me. Just give me a little bit of yourself. Who ends up treating us like that? They ruin our hearts. Does this make sense? These are the sentences we're racing through here. There's so much nuance in here, we're just skipping right over. But, but there's four glimpses into Jesus' teaching, and there's four, again, seemingly random conversations. But, but what Mark's doing, and this is why we're kind of tackling his gospel in, in a little bit of a quicker pace, is he's weaving them together in this one lesson. And here's what I want you to see. Allegiance with the Pharisees and Herodians is about our identity. It's about our soul, the core of who we are. Knowledge, if that's what we're basing our faith on, knowing more about God, figuring out every detail of the puzzle that is God, it's basing our entire relationship with God on our minds, figuring them out, puzzling them together, knowing more about Him. The conversation about the greatest commandment with the scribes is based on what we can do. It's about our strength. And then his charge, beware of the scribes, is about our heart. Who are you giving your heart to? In this chapter, Jesus is expanding on the verse we read together a little bit ago. Love the Lord with all your what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because there are other things that are going to try to steal them from you, and there are other things that you're going to try to do to base your religion on your ability to give your heart here, your soul here, your mind here, your strength here. And then, through that lens, there's this tiny little final scene of this chapter that's so poignant and beautiful. I just want to read us how Mark wraps this up. After saying all those, painting those pictures, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called to his disciples and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contribute out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in what? Everything she has, all she has to live on. What did the poor widow give? Literally, a penny. Great job. But again, as everything else in this chapter, there's this deeper layer. What does she really give? Everything she has. And, and Jesus is not just talking about a couple of tax dollars, temple tax pennies here. She, she gave her all. She's, she's devoted to God in heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pharisees, 
value of allegiance? Sadducees, theology, scribes, actions. What's the poor widow value? A life of wholehearted devotion to God. And so by closing this passage with this most money, Jesus is just bringing us full circle. The, the, the first scene tonight was about this. Jesus is starting the ending with money. Which is to ask, what part of your financial life does Jesus truly own? All of it. What part does the government claim? Some of it. What are we willing to give to God? Does we look beyond money? What value of your mental life does God own? All of it. What's going to claim other things periodically? Some of it. What... Who, who demands and deserves our primary affection? What does God deserve as far as our love and our affection and our worship and our honor? All of it. Is it right and good occasionally to love some other people? Yes, yes it is. But, but there's this surface percentage piece to everything that Jesus is talking about, and there's this undercurrent of everything. Wholehearted, deserving, because Jesus deserves it because he's the only one who's going to do right by it, 100% of the time. It's so easy to make it look like God has all the pieces of our life. I don't learn more about God. I tell people what I'm learning about God. I'm doing more stuff for God. But Jesus' charge in the midst of the religion of his day is you can look good outwardly, but there's no real and deep change. You're missing the point because you cut out your heart, you cut out your soul. And so we'll close with this. God does not just want your knowledge of God. And God does not just want the stuff you can do for God. God invites you to bring to him your affection, your heart, the core of your identity, your very soul. And God invites you to go below the surface with him, beyond just the stuff that we can display and do because he deserves it. He's the only one who's going to treat our heart, soul, minds, and strength right. Again, Jesus isn't afraid of the hardest, most sensitive parts of your life. I would imagine if you were to spend some time with your heart, soul, mind, strength, there's some of that that I'm much more willing to show God and some of it that I'm much less willing. I'm willing to give some of my heart, soul, mind, and strength to others to love them, to love my neighbor as, as myself. And there's other things that I'm far more wanting to keep. Jesus is not afraid of the hard and sensitive parts of your life. He loves and cares for the things that you love most and least. There's nothing you have to hide from him. There's nothing you get to hide from So who has your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength? Who, what, what has your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Jesus alone deserves them. Jesus alone will rightly treat them. And he proved that by giving his heart, soul, mind, and strength for you. But you get this, right? He, he poured out his literal being. He gave his soul. Jesus loved you to the point of his own death. He gave every fiber of his strength for your weakness. His affection was so turned on God and you that it led him to the cross. And then God raised him to this new life where we get to join him in giving our heart, soul, mind, and strength because he matters most. Is that good news?
before we celebrate that by taking communion, which is a remembrance of Jesus giving his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength for us. So at your tables, there's uh, wafers and juice and wine. Juice is the light-colored stuff. Wine is the dark-colored stuff. And as we do this, what we're remembering is Jesus giving him his whole self for us. The reason we give our whole selves to him is because he first gave our whole selves to us. The reason we're generous toward God and others or loving toward God and others is because he was first generous and loving toward us. So take the bread, dip it in the juice of the wine, and we're going to take, saying this is Jesus' body broken for you, and this is his blood shed for you and for many. For all, frankly, the times where we give other things our heart, soul, mind, and strength, where we keep some of our heart, soul, mind, and strength for ourselves, he still meets us and gives his all in those moments. Take and eat. Father, we thank you that you have first given everything for us in your son Jesus. We thank you that because of your sacrifice, because of your love, because of your self-giving, you prove that you're a good king, a good recipient, a good caretaker that can help us and our hearts, souls, minds, and strengths flourish in a way that nothing and no one else can. Will you help us to, to remember that? As soon as we walk out of here, all sorts of other things are going to ask for our trust, for our affection, for our worship, for our honor. Will you help us to, to, to live in this tension of doing right by those around us, but giving everything for you? It's in your son's name.